Hey everybody, it's Richard Harrison Scott Lease here with our 150th episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. And of course, we can't have a milestone like that without having a milestone guest. Before I introduce him, though, we want to give a big shout out to Lead411 and Gong.io for supporting us. We really appreciate their efforts. If you don't know anything about them, please go check them out. Uh, if you do, go out and tweet about them. Tell them how good and wonderful they are, because I know they'd appreciate it. And without further ado, please welcome my bald brethren, <laughs> the handsome man, the good-looking guy, Mr. Ralph Barcy. Ralph, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Scott. What an honor. Wow, 150. Congratulations. Yeah, I, I, I wish I could say we were smart enough to, like, schedule it purposely so you were number 150. This is a happy accident. Well, uh, I'm happy to be here nonetheless. Scott, stop. Stop. Come on, man. Like, let them think yeah. we, you're ruining our reputation. I don't know. Our reputation is one of transparency, Richard. I'm keeping it real. That's keep right. It real. It's real. all good. See, I've got my little coin here that says keep it real. All right. Yeah. Ralph, uh, tell, tell everybody where you're at now and, and, uh, and what you do just, you know, for context for people who don't know you. Sure. I'm uh, Ralph Barcy. I'm uh, located in the San Francisco Bay Area. I lead the global inside sales organization at Trey.io, uh, which integrates all the applications in one's tech stack uh, and drives automated workflows across the enterprise. Uh, what else do you want to know? I could tell you all kinds of stuff. I love to play the drums. What's your... Oh, cool. So who's your favorite drummer? Uh, favorite drummer is Buddy Rich, you know, a big band drummer from, you know, the forties, uh, played for Tommy Dorsey's orchestra before going off on his own and creating his own band. And then it d depends on genre, you know, like if you're talking about pop punk, it's probably Travis Barker. If you're talking about classic rock, it'll be John Bonham or, uh, Neil Peart, uh, and who else? Like, then there's jazz drummers like Tony Williams who played for uh, Miles Davis and uh, yeah, it goes on and on, but I've played since I was three years old and I've uh, been in a band and it's wow. just, it's what I love to do. You're a real, real student. Have you been watching these Dave Grohl versus 10 year old Mandy uh, drum competition things? They're so cool. Yeah, I have watched them and they're really cool. I mean, he, it's so fun. Uh, he's really leaning into it, you know, creating these videos and writing songs for yeah. her. And just, you know, to watch her light up when she watches his videos is just pure joy. And uh, it's inspirational uh, to see her get all fired up and want to, you know, want to go get something back to him as quickly as possible. Yeah. It's just super fun to watch. And she's a great drummer. She's amazing, too. And yeah. Her, uh, her energy and, like, her, her spirit is just, like, so infectious, too. It's, like, it's really fun to watch. So, hey, Ralph. Yeah. So if you start playing at three... Right. Yes. Yeah. Bands didn't do bands. Did you ever? Were you? In, I mean, I just can't imagine. Like, three-year-old becomes virtuoso in my mind. Right. <laughs> um, what was? I mean, did you go through the whole high school band, college band, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I played in high school uh, in the pep band. So we would be the ones at the basketball games having drum battles with the with the drummers on the other side of the gymnasium. Uh, but yeah, I started at age three. My father uh, grew up playing keyboards and, uh, you know, he's the one who wanted me to take formal lessons when I was banging on pots and pans as a little kid. 
And so I learned the rudiments uh, from age like three to six. And it was, you know, right, right, left, 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 right, right. Only we would label it mama, daddy, daddy, mama, and just, you know, make it a little more adaptable for a kid to learn. And uh, then it was kind of a roller coaster ride in terms of consistency, going to lessons and whatnot. And then when I got into high school in the pep band, there were some side bands that were breaking off from other musicians in, in our high school. Uh, in college, I, again, played with other musicians in school. And then just after college, uh, got back together with a bunch of buddies from high school and uh, a friend from college. And um, we formed a band called Segway, S-E-G-U-E. And this was in 1994. And uh, ended up releasing three records. Two of them are on Spotify and iTunes today. We gigged around California. Nothing spectacular, but at, you know, at our peak, we were probably doing 50, 55 shows a year. So we were, we were trucking wow. there for a while. That's fantastic. Now, yeah, it, it was awesome. Now, did you have merch and, and things <laughs> like that? Were you selling tapes or CDs out of the truck? Like yeah, that. so we uh, we we didn't have a huge merch uh, pile. We did have T-shirts at one point, but we used to, uh, you know, fold all the inserts that would go into your tape cassette at the time. Uh, and you know, we had to deal with all the people that would produce that art and produce the tape cassettes, and then that obviously evolved into CDs and then ultimately digital. But yeah, we had to go through all the motions. We would be handing out. CDs at shows and, you know, sending around a clipboard to get everybody on our mailing list. And uh, it was awesome. So, so this is your first demand gen kind of uh, role being in this band, right? Trying to sell tickets to shows and, you know, get people to get the CDs and t-shirts and stuff like that, right? hundred percent, you know, and we were doing things uh, that don't scale. <laughs> so what we would do is we would get on the phone a good week or two in advance of any gig and I would call up you, Scott, and say, hey, man, just want you to know we're going to be playing uh, at Mix Lounge in San Francisco. We'd love to see you there. Bring like three friends. You know, we'll get you a drink when you show up. Uh, people would call us about getting on the guest list, et cetera. But it was a huge demand gen effort. Yeah. Uh, and learned a lot from those days, actually. Just the whole promotional engine that you had to spin up to get ready for even one gig or to promote a CD was a big deal. Yeah, it's interesting actually. How I'm, I'm surprised we've never got into this, Richard, with uh, other guests who've been musicians like Dale Decree and, and people like that. Like, you, you, there's actually a lot of comparisons to, to selling. And I mean, think about how many times you've uh, bombed or failed a, a show, right? Where mm. people didn't show up, and you're like, oh my god, how fun is it to play in front of three people? in there <laughs> yeah yeah right it's it's, it's just uh it's an overblown rehearsal at that point we uh, that happened to us at new yeah. george's in san rafael yeah i know that place i, I swear to god I, I think three people were there it was ridiculous we had a sax player you know join us on stage blowing the sax and dude no one was there <laughs> <laughs> something uh, very humbling but yeah you know uh, it's funny you bring that up just the the um correlation to what we do all the time, you know, in, in SAS, for example, but there's a great book that was recently released uh, from Derek Sivers and it's called Your Music and People. And it's available digitally on his blog. I think it's Sivers, I think it's S-I-V-E-R, S-I-V dot E-R, I think is what his website is. But anyway, that book talks all about 
hey, you got to be reaching out to people all the time. You've got to, you've got to maybe tier people if you need to in your network as A's, B's, C's. The A's are going to hear from you maybe once a month, where the C's, you're going to hear from them once a, once a year, you know, maybe around the holidays. But you're making sure that you're top of mind and that they're top of mind. Uh, and just the whole power of networking as it, you know, it scales exponentially, the, the larger it gets, et cetera. Uh, he writes about it eloquently and um, simply. He puts it in simple terms and very actionable terms as well. So I, I loved that book. Uh, I would actually recommend it to a lot of sales development reps, a lot of demand gen folks, uh, because I think it, you know, it goes, it goes both ways in terms of crossing verticals and industries. That's awesome. That's really cool. What, um, so, so coming out of the music thing, right? Like where, where did you decide to go into sales? Like, how did that, was it like, Oh shit, I just spent all this year on the road and I got to <laughs> find a job that pays me something, you know, like where did that, what was that transition? Yeah, it was, uh, so I was doing it in parallel, you know, during those peak years I was telling you about. So I, my, my, quote, sales career really started, uh, I was a newspaper boy uh, in Pacifica, where I grew up, Pacifica, California. And, uh, you know, I was going around delivering papers. It was the San Francisco Chronicle in the morning and the San Francisco Examiner in the afternoon and on the weekends. And uh, I was going around having to, you know, I was part of my accounts receivable team as well. So I had to go uh, get money from all the, the neighbors that I had been throwing papers uh, on the porches up for the last month. And uh, that's really where the whole sales thing started. And people told me, you know, when I was growing up, hey, you either need to get into politics or sales, one or the other. So I was kind of brought up being told, you know, you need to get in front of crowds and you need to, um, you need to sell and you need to help people. Uh, so started my career right out of college at UPS. And I was an account executive for them for close to six years. And that's really where uh, I started to learn about, uh, you know, the, the more formal aspects of selling and business in general. And all that time, Richard, I was in the band. You know, I start, like I said, the band started in 94. Uh, I started working for UPS in February of 94. Uh, so was rehearsing and gigging at night and working during the day. And, um, you know, the career evolved from there in, in different companies, as you know, but yeah, I've been selling for a long time. So, so talk about UPS, right? Cause I yep. have a really good friend. Uh, named George, who was in their HR department. You can tell all kinds of crazy stories about UPS. Sure. But from what I, but from what I understand, they're really good at, at, you know, training. Like they're, they're a strong organization in lots of ways. And I'm curious, did they have a formal training program? Is that where you sort of were exposed to best practices or was it, you know, the old school, go figure it out. Here's your territory route. No, a great question. It was definitely the former. Uh, that's a very structured, buttoned up organization. And uh, when I started in 94, they weren't yet public. Uh, they were privately held and we felt that they were going to be like that f forever. Uh, ultimately, they did go public and they made sure that the UPS drivers became uh, shareholders and owners in the company, which I thought was a great move. Uh, but Back to your question about the training, uh, I started as a paid intern and uh, earned the account executive job soon after, but there was pretty rigorous formal training, uh, specifically around managerial skills. So I was exposed to that, you know, very early in my career. In fact, they had four really thick books 
that were published internally from founders and senior leaders from over the years and over the decades. Uh, and those books would include maybe um, speeches that they gave at uh, leadership breakfasts or banquets or um, you know, owner meetings, et cetera. But they, would, they were transparent enough to share what the leaders were telling uh, the other leaders and ultimately the company and what was on their mind and what was on their radar. Uh, and then they also had a policy book, which I'm sure they use today. And that policy book, we would read at the start of every uh, manager meeting and every meeting that we would have with the drivers. We used to have pre-work communication meetings. They called them PCMs. Every morning where we would stand in a, in a circle with all the people that handled our patch or district, et cetera. And we would pick a clause from that policy book and we would read through it, read through it just to remind everybody of the fundamentals uh, and you know, the cornerstones that the company was working from. And every time you read from that policy book, you would initial it, you would date it so that it wouldn't be repeated uh, until a good year later. Uh, and you would ensure that you're gonna get through all the major policies just as a reminder and reinforcement to everybody as to what was up. Managers were in suits and ties. Uh, we, I had the leather briefcase, like the whole nine yards, very formal, but I learned a tremendous amount very early uh, just on the importance of standards of excellence, high integrity, polished, presentable, professional, uh, proficient, uh, that has really helped carry me through my career. I love this image of uh, Ralph with the, the briefcase, by, by the way. Oh, dude. Totally. totally. And I had well, a full uh, head of hair, too. How about that? That was going to ask. <laughs> um, but so, because it's interesting, because I've, I've known you over the years. I know Scott's known you over the years. And I've, I've watched you speak, right? And your dynamic is different than mine or Scott's. Um, you're passionate, but not more thoughtful, but you're sincerely thoughtful in the way you speak, but you're not one of those all right, let's go out and, you know, crush it today. And do you think that is that Ralph in general, or was that also part of what you were taught from the UPS perspective, right? Like you can do these things, you can be motivational. You don't have to, and I'm not talking about the beating people up yelling. I'm talking about, you know, the, the football coach, baseball coach kind of motivational stuff. Is that by, you know, is that by nature of who Ralph is, or is that a little bit by design too, from your early exposure? It's a little of both, uh, but I've really leaned into the craft, so to speak, uh, probably over the last 10 years. Uh, uh, I've uh, always been mindful that, you know, when you're addressing any audience in any venue, you know, not everyone's down with you. They're just not. They're not down with whatever style you bring. Uh, that, you know, so if I were, you know, Mr. Rah-Rah at one point in my career, there's, I don't know, 10, 20, even 30% of people in the room who are like, you know, whatever, dude. Uh, and as I've, I guess, matured and grown up a little bit, I've realized that, you know, it's like a room filled with tuning forks. A few people are tuned to my frequency. Hopefully the majority are. And uh, for those that aren't, even if I could leave behind some nugget of value that they can take and apply today, uh, and that there is one thing that they've learned from whatever it is I'm talking about, then right on, uh, you know, I've served that mission. Uh, 
uh, I'm just a little more, like I said, mindful, aware, a little more sensitive now to the fact that, you know, not everybody's me or like me or, you know, has the same habits and disciplines that I do. And that's taken a long time to really work on and figure out a lot of self-awareness practice and, um, you know, keeping the ego healthy and in check. Uh, that's so that answers the latter part of the question, Richard, where it has been by design uh, of late, probably over the last decade. As usual, Richard is talking while muting himself. <laughs> this is a running <laughs> joke, Rob. It happens, it happens twice an episode. <laughs> Apropos for like, what we're talking about, sometimes you got to just mute yourself, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like when I look at my golf score and I'm like, how many putts oh. did it take in the green today? I'm averaging, you know, I average almost three putts a green on the, on the podcast, which is not good. Um, <laughs> But, uh, so now, Ralph, like giving people some tactics, right? Like in management, particularly, I think, um, we are in the COVID world. We're in that work from home space. What are some things you've had to adjust or learn from that you could give to other leaders or even to the reps to help them understand or, you know, manage their own day or, or schedule? Um, it's been tough. You know, it's been really tough uh, navigating the COVID waters. Uh, things that, are, that have seen me through and helped me help the team see this through is just a reminder that life is a series of temporary events. This too shall pass. You know, we're not going to be in the midst of this forever. Uh, so what are we going to do while we are, are in the midst of it? Also, when we do come out of it, we're going to be unique individuals having gone through and lived through and worked through these times. And there's going to be generations behind us that will want to learn from us. You know, what was it like during 2020? What a crazy, crazy year in so many respects. How did you make it through? And the last thing I want to do or I want my team to do is to, you know, talk to those generations and say, oh, man, I just, I complained a lot. You know, my head was down low all the time. I tried not to uh, inspire and fire up those around me who were going through the same thing. I was just you know, um, not cool to people, not cool to myself. I'd much rather have the opposite as our narrative. So I've really reinforced the fact that this is temporary. Also, um, I've encouraged people to, you know, journal, journal and, you know, talk to themselves if they need to, to get them through the next hour or the next day or the next week versus, you know, really leaning on and relying on others. And there's nothing wrong with this, of course, to motivate and inspire them. Uh, it's really to get in touch with where, what's, what's burning that fire within you and what's compelling you and pulling you towards your goals and your mission versus pushing you towards it. Uh, and I think a lot of people sometimes just need to hear that in order to go, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's something I should probably meditate on or pray about or really just reflect on uh, to, you know, to make it through. Um, lastly is just, you know, we're playing the long game here, uh, but we have to keep our world small. And by doing that, we have to sometimes operate in 10 minute increments or 60 minute chunks. Uh, there's a, there's a former Navy SEAL named Chad Wright, who uh, talks about this philosophy of it, like, let's just make it to lunch, you know, and just kind of break up the day. Let's just make it to lunch. Anybody can endure really tough stuff for four hours. And when you kind of bring that kind of stuff into perspective, it's just, you know, all of a sudden you look back and you're pretty amazed at how far you've gone. So it's things like that, Richard, uh, to, um, 
you know, kind of remind ourselves of to, to get us all through this. And also that we're, we're a team. There's a big difference between being on a team and being a team. So help your peers out. You know, if, you, if you're doing great this month or quarter and you're on your way to quota or beyond, uh, perhaps you, you should feel obligated to kind of turn to your left or right and help out your peers who might be struggling with, you know, leaving that great voicemail or, you know, fine tuning their email copy, et cetera. If you can see things that they might not, uh, you know, lead by example and help them out so that you, you can all win together. Well, one of the things you just said really resonates with me. You know, he's, I think you said his name is Chad is like make it till lunch kind of thing. And we can endure anything for four hours. Um, you know, with all the health stuff that I've been through, like I've done that in blocks of like five minutes, not, not four hours of lunch, before like I just got to make it the next five minutes I got to make it the next 20 minutes until the doctor comes in I got to make it the next hour before I get you know the next pain medicine you know injection or, or, or whatever um, so that that part makes a ton of sense to me here's a part that I want to challenge you on a little bit mm -hmm. or learn learn more about mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure that we totally disagree but I heard you say um, reminding people that this is temporary and one of the things that has worked for me, I think at least, is very quickly when this all started back in late February, I flipped really, really swiftly to this is the new norm and this is mm. the way it's going to be for, for the indefinite you know, future. Um, and it was helpful to me because I didn't want to play this game of like, now we're good, now we're not. Now we're good, now we're not. And get like wrong expectations for myself and, and, and whatnot. I, I looked at it as like, I need to survive this for however long it goes. And, and that's, it sounds like you and I approach it a little bit different. Is that, is, is that true? Did I hear it right? And, and if, if so, can you elaborate a little more on like why you viewed it differently than maybe how I am viewing it? Sure. And um, I'll want you to elaborate too, Scott. I think you bring up a really good point. Uh, just my philosophy has not, uh, it's not so much that what I do think we will, we will see our way through uh, COVID, for example. I, I, I see it subsiding in, I don't know when, but I do see it happening. And um, I'm not dismissing that will be different individuals on the other side of this. Um, but I do think that while we're in the midst of it, there are, there are certain ways we can choose to handle it. You know, it's always like, it always comes back to, you know, there are certain things you can control in life. And one is your interpretation of events and your reaction to those events. And so when I think about that and I think about a, a situation that, like the one we're in with COVID, I just remind myself and others around me that this is going to pass. So how are you going to, um, how are you going to handle it and how are you going to want to see yourself on the other side? So I don't know, um, if that addresses the question, if it doesn't ask it again, but, uh, no, I think it, I think it's, it does. I think maybe it, it's different from how you're doing it or others are doing it. I think it does address the question. And, okay. um, I actually don't feel like we're thinking about it as dissimilarly as, as maybe I, I heard it the first time. Right. Okay. Like I, I definitely think we will go back to some semblance of, of normal at some point in time. 
I think for me, it was almost just like protective or a defense mechanism for myself, right? Like sure. I'm not going to get my hopes up that this is going to end in a week or a month or whatever. Ah. So I'm going to take action right now as if this is the new normal for the foreseeable future. So, you know, you said something there about like, you know, uh, I can't exactly remember how you phrase it. It was like, what are you going to do with this particular amount of time while all this is going on? Yep. Are we going to dwell on all the negative with it? Or are we going to, you know, fight through? Are we going to be supportive and helpful and whatnot? And my brain, for whatever reason, was able to flip very quickly into this like actionable steps. Okay, this is the new norm. I'm going to help as many people as possible. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to focus on when this is going to end. It will end when it ends. Um, and so I think we're sort of, sort of closer to being on the same page than I initially, initially heard. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think you're right. I think we are closer to being on the same page. And it, it kind of comes back to staying present, being in the present, kind of just being in this little square right now yeah. at this moment, today, uh, and then step into the next square when that presents itself. No you, pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, do you feel like it's easier or harder to have some uncomfortable conversations with your team members and colleagues right now because of everything that's going on, whether it's COVID or, you know, fires that are going on or, uh, you know, racial injustice happening all, all across the country. I'm, I'm wondering if it's making some difficult conversations around performance easier for folks to have or, or tougher Ooh. for folks to have. What That's do you think? Question. Um, it's, I have found it to be tougher. It's more difficult to have conversations like this with peers, colleagues, um, because of, you know, the aforementioned, uh, as well as, you know, just how people are interpreting uh, what's going on around the world and in their own respective lives. There's just, I think I have a heightened sensitivity these days where maybe I didn't, uh, you know, eight months ago because we were all together in the same office, uh, specifically with sales development reps. You know, we're kind of in that bullpen environment or we were, and I could see people's dispositions and attitudes and work ethic on a regular basis and, and have a pretty good understanding of how they worked or didn't. So it was a little easier for me to have those types of conversations. Whereas now we're remote and you've got a lot of that macro stuff going on that you talked about. So there's, there's some implicit fears, concerns, you know, troubles that people are handling in addition to what they're being asked to do in the, in the daily operation. Yeah. So I feel like I have to, delicately hack my way through a lot of that macro stuff before we can get to the micro of, okay, we have to achieve our quota this month or quarter. Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, what the investor thesis is of the company and our, our part in the puzzle, et cetera. But I have to go through some things first to get to that stuff, which makes yeah, it a lot you, harder. We really got to be uh, very precise in our navigation with all these things that the margin for error, if you will, it feels like it's shrinking a little bit. I totally agree with you that I think these conversations are harder to have. Um, I think that what has happened with some of us is our degree of empathy has like never been higher. Oh yeah. Right? And so we're aware and thinking about all these things on a deeper level than maybe we ever were before when we were in the 
you know, the boiler room kind of situation, right? And what's interesting to me is like, it's, a, it's possibly forcing us to evolve as leaders and particularly sales leaders in a positive way, because like you could make the case that we always should have been this way. Mm -hmm. And right? I would make that case. Yeah. But, but we weren't like, I, I wasn't 15 years mm -hmm. ago, not even, not even close. Right. I was sooner than 15 years too. <laughs> it was about 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Richard for that, for that one. For that day. But yeah, but, but no, the, the point is like, we, we probably should have been thinking about these things, you know, a little more uh, holistically and empathetically all along. And now, and now we are. So my question there is like, will this continue? Will we continue or will this fade away once things kind of get closer to, you know, the old, old norm? Or is this like a, a, a paradigm shift for us where sales leaders in particular now are going to want to lead this way and on some level have to lead this way or nobody's going to work for them anymore. Yeah, I, I think it's the latter. I do think it's a paradigm shift. And what it's going to come down to is the individual leaders leading by example, really illustrating that empathy that you're talking about and that sensitivity and that mindfulness, but also being able to tactfully throttle up, you know, and go full steam ahead. Because at the end of the day, we are still running businesses and we are still yeah. looking to, um, you know, drive those businesses to thrive. Uh, yeah. we, we do far, still have numbers to hit. We got to hit numbers and we still got to run the show here or you're, maybe you're in the wrong line of work, but that is what we do. Uh, but yeah, there's a different, I think, better approach that will be taken uh, by most leaders uh, that I'm already seeing adopted right now. A lot of the leaders that I'm talking to, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a great call to lead by example and to, um, you know, be selfless. Start thinking about your team. Start thinking about your prospects and your customers that you're talking to when you're reaching out to them. Be super authentic and it will resonate. You know, people have finely tuned BS meters and they know if you're being inauthentic in an email, uh, on the phone, in a message, at a team meeting, et cetera. So keep it real. So Ralph, I'm going to... Particularly now, um, I'm curious, but even even in throughout your career, but answer first now, what mistakes have you made through the last six months at the managerial level? And, and I don't mean to sort of, you know, whether it's setting goals, not setting goals, coaching the wrong way. Like, what's, what are some of the things, because I, I hope that maybe people can learn from you and go, oh, you know what? I kind of did that, and here's an answer to it, or oh, wow, my, my instincts were right that I didn't do that. Um, and I know you're perfect, um, but you know, <laughs> I, I'm curious if there's uh, any, any mistakes you've made, particularly on the management side. Uh, one, one mistake that I am constantly working on is investing in the number of stakeholders uh, around the organization that are involved uh, or, or cross-pollinate with a lot of the work that your team's doing. I think it's so critical and imperative, actually, that you drive a very strong interlock between key stakeholders in your business. So if you lead a sales development team, you got to be super tight as best you can with your demand gen leader. 
you got to be super tight with your professional services and customer success team, sales, et cetera, because they all rely on one another. It's a two-way street. And if we go back to the band analogy, as a drummer, I have to be locked in with my bass player. We are the rhythm section that the band has to rely on in order to you know, play a great song, perform well. The same applies to the work I'm doing every day. I've been okay at it. I haven't been great at it. And I think it is a mistake that I have to repair quickly. Just make sure that I'm reaching out to Scott if he's my demand gen person, even once a week. Not necessarily to say, hey, Scott, look, um, questionable MQLs this last couple of weeks. You know, I think uh, that's the, the main uh, indicator as to why our conversion rate to sales qualified opportunity is dipping versus, uh, you know, instead of saying that I should go to Scott saying, hey, what's on the docket for your team this month? What are you, what, what initiatives or mini initiatives are you focused on so that we can help serve, help serve and support them? Oh, by the way, we could talk about M MQL conversion rates too, but you know, tell me what you're trying to accomplish so that we can help you try to accomplish it because we're going to be relying on you to help us get to where we're trying to go to. I, I have to do a better job at that. Yeah, that's a really good call out. And I, I think it's hopefully very apparent to other sales leaders out there that we need to be aligned with marketing. We need to be aligned with CS. What is maybe less apparent that I'd love to hear your take on is Oh, by the way, we also have to be aligned with the VP of finance yep. and VP of engineering. What are some ways that you can pressure test whether sales is in alignment with product and finance? And then, and what is a way or two that you can build that kind of uh, rapport and, and synchronicity with the finance and product and engineering folks that you can do with CS and marketing? I think those ones get talked about a lot less than the CS marketing. Uh, I would think, if I understand what you're asking, Scott, in terms of the pressure testing, it, number one, it comes uh, from awareness. You know, I think if sales is aware of the various program spends and budgets across the enterprise, they're going to be a little more uh, mindful of, you know, what their next campaign might be or what their next spiff might be. Uh, because they're hyper aware of what program spend there is or isn't uh, in, in the finance team, for example. And then with respect to uh, the second part of your question, uh, one thing I've seen work in two different organizations now, we did this at ServiceNow, we also do this at Trey, is we host what we call Team Tuesdays. And every Tuesday from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. during the lunch hour, uh, a representative from one of the business units across our company will sit with the sales development reps and it could be a fireside chat. It could be Q and a from the team. It could be, maybe they presented a couple, a couple slides on their background and then a little bit about their business unit. Um, but over time, when you look back, we've created this online repository of all the live, uh, all the presentation recordings, as well as the decks that have been shared You've got this trail of breadcrumbs now for not only the existing team, but new hires, people in other uh, business units across the organization to reference with respect to, hey, what does Scott's team do anyway? Or, you know, I see Richard all the time, but I don't know what his organization does or what really what their function is. They can go back to these Team Tuesday recordings 
and they can see the presentation, they can hear Richard talking about his business within the business, and then they could see all the follow-up emails because every time a Team Tuesday speaker uh, wraps up, we send them a very detailed thank you. That includes all the takeaways that all the people who attended that meeting got you know, from that meeting, all the insights that they got and the info, information that they got, and they share it in their thank you email, and then we aggregate it. So we've got this line of bullet points of all the takeaways. And now you've got this catalog of information to share with anybody across the company as to what's going on in Scott's world, Richard's world, et cetera, so that everybody becomes one. What do you see? Um, it's interesting you think about something. You know, and I hear this a lot, I think Scott hears it, is that, hey, sales needs to reach out to these other departments, right? Um, and And, to build that relationship. How do we, should the other departments be reaching out to us too? Uh, I think so, selfishly, but- Or is our I'm ego also, push them away so hard that- Yeah, I, I, I think a little of both. Um, we have to, if, if you really know the business, you know that sales is responsible for bringing in revenue and that's where their focus needs to be. And sometimes you need to be a little more proactive, take a little more initiative in getting in front of them. And you also have to be aware of how people receive information and process it. Scott may prefer an email. You may prefer a quick video, uh, a 60 second update. Uh, others may want you know, an audio recording. There's different ways people learn as we all know. So if you can hit them with all media, uh, to make sure that the message is getting across as to what's up in the sales development world or what's up in the sales world. Uh, I think it'll resonate with more people. And sometimes it's just informational. When you send out that stuff, you cannot expect a response. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean people aren't processing it, absorbing it, learning from it. Uh, I, I, and that leads us to just the whole topic of communication, which I think leaders could be better at. Here's, here's how I see that, Richard, if I can step in and try to answer the question as well, if you don't mind. Um, I think, yes, the heads of these other departments should be reaching out to sales as well. My experience is that um, while that may be the case, they're probably not going to. Therefore, it's my responsibility as the sales leader to make it happen. Love it. So I, just, I just assume that this burden of responsibility is mine and I have to make it happen. I, I'm not gonna rely on them to do it. Do I think that they should? Yes, I think that they should. But it's on me to make it happen. That's kind of how I think about it. Which brings me to my next question, Ralph. I heard, I heard the other day somebody say, um, and I think it was Megan Bowen, who's uh, <clears throat> operations and CS focused and, and on the East Coast. But I think she said something to the effect of, you know, since the 80s, sales has been king. And her prediction is that as the lines between sales and marketing and CS are kind of starting to blur now a little bit and more focuses on value-based selling and the customer first kind of mentality, that sales will no longer be king and will get kicked off the top of the mountain and be replaced by customer success within the next like 10 to 20 years. 
curious if you've thought of this, have heard of this, agree, disagree. I thought it was a really interesting uh, take that she had. I, I haven't heard that. I think it's an interesting take as well. Uh, I hate to break it to her, but she's already, she, she's part of sales too. Everybody is. So sorry, but sales is king. Sales is queen. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, revenue solves a lot of problems. Uh, and I do think that everybody is in sales in some respect. It does not matter what business unit you represent. If you're representing your own company as an entrepreneur, or if you're representing the company that you work for, you're selling. Uh, that's my take on things. That's how I would interpret that. Uh, so if she wants to uh, feel that, you know, the, the spotlight's going to steer more towards, you know, customer centric work, I couldn't agree with her more. I mean, I think uh, even on the selling side, when we're dealing with prospects, we need to uh, envision those prospects as customers of ours, even from the initial conversations that we have with them, because we'll treat them better. We'll be kinder to them. We'll be a little more focused on, you know, what problems they're trying to solve and how soon and how they stack rank those problems, et cetera. So it's a long way of saying, uh, I still think sales is king and queen uh, of the roost. Sorry. <laughs> I love, I love how, I love how that was probably the most dis pleasant disagreement I've ever heard. <laughs> right? Like I've never, and like, I don't think I've ever heard anybody more politely call out someone in disagreement than I just heard in the moment. So if there's one thing I walk away from this, it's that one moment. <laughs> cool. Um, what, what made you focus on the top of the funnel so much in your career? Ah, uh, the development what made of people. You sort of go to that side. Yeah, the development of people, Richard. Uh, you know, typically, as as we what does all that mean know, to you, what, when you say development of people, uh, typically, as we all know, um, for the most part, the demographic of a sales development function. Uh, includes people who are starting out in their career. And if they're not starting out in their career, if they've, if they've uh, been professionals for a couple decades, they're still technically starting out in sales in sa it, as a sales development rep. And I have always appreciated the privilege and the opportunity to really teach, coach, and develop people uh, to become who it is they're trying to become when they go to work. And to help them really connect the dots and see the importance of the work that they're doing right here in the present moment and how it's going to positively impact themselves and others as they evolve in their career. They'll look back on the skills and the competencies that they learned and, and shaped as sales development reps, and they'll see um, how they can pepper it into their daily operation 10, 20, 30 years later. And we can go down the whole list of all the different competencies that they're learning and developing as SDRs uh, and how that, you know, how that pays forward. And this, so, this is still why you do what you do then, because you must feel like the, the largest way for you to make an impact in developing people is to be building and scaling and leading these, these teams and organizations, I assume, right? hundred percent right, Scott, you know, uh, with love and respect to uh, my sales colleagues who are in individual, individual contributor roles, you know, the, uh, most of them kind of know what they know and they're, they're doing what they do. And it's, they're, they're tougher nuts to crack uh, in terms of really influencing them. Uh, whereas with sales development reps, I think 
I think I could teach them well to, to go on to not only represent themselves, but to represent, you know, the three of us and everybody in our profession really, really well and uh, with the highest standards and highest integrity as they move forward. Uh, and then in turn, what, what's really incredible is when they go on to pay it forward and impact even more people with some of the philosophies that they learned while they worked with me and some of the philosophies that they've uh, developed on their own. That's, that brings me the most fulfillment, much more than a, a commission check as an individual contributor ever has. Yeah. And it's fun, uh, it's fun to see your coaching tree, if you will. Yes, exactly. Like grow and, and you know, we're old, we're all old enough now where like people that we've managed have now managed to become VPs and CEOs and CROs and they've had time to like continue the further development, right? Like I'm sure you can think of people who were an SDR for you or an entry level AE who are now in big leadership roles doing amazing or maybe I've even done better than, you know, any of us have. Have done, right? Yeah, I'll take it a step further. I mean, some have gone on to create their own yoga practices. Some have become Catholic priests. I mean, I've seen it's run the gamut as to who people have become, but it does not matter to me. I mean, wh where they are today, the fact that they're influencing and impacting people in a positive way, that's the whole point. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoked to see it. You know, I'm nearing age 50 here and uh, it's, it's, I know I'm aging myself, but it's something else to look back and, and just kind of see that, that coaching tree that you mentioned. It's in a great book. The score takes care of itself from Bill Walsh and Steve Jameson. If people aren't familiar with the coaching tree, it's, it's, uh, it's really incredible to be part of. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun to have conversations with people who used to be reps of mine five, 10, 15 years ago, and they're in the same role that I've been in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. It's, it's just really neat. So, Are you in touch um, with a lot of them still, Scott? Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. Oh, that's cool. Like, Good. like every single day type of thing. But, you know, one of the things that I have tried to do a good job of, um, I think I do a good job of it is, is really just like my accessibility. Like yep. I am available. Yep. Right. <clears throat> um, whether it's text messages, emails, what have you, like, um, I get back to everybody. It's, it's something I spend a lot of time on, um, just kind of keeping some of those relationships, you know, alive, if, if you will. Um, and so I, I, I'm in touch with a lot of them. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun. So. I love hearing that. Um, hopefully listeners and viewers take note of that. That's, that's a precious practice right there. Yeah. Well, it also, uh, you know, every now and then gets me in trouble with my, my kids or my wife who are like, Put your phone down. Stop. <laughs> you know? so, oh, that's right. We, we have families. That's right. I forgot. <laughs> I have a question for the two of you. So, Perfect. you know, we're yeah. celebrating episode 150, right? So what's next? Uh, is, there, is there a newer mission that you have now in terms of the rest of the conversations that you plan to have? Uh, just talk to us about that a little bit. I love this. Ralph just totally flipped. He's just, Ralph is the interviewer now, Richard. You're, you're That's go. great. Richard, tell, tell, tell Ralph your vision. So there are a couple of them. So first of all, for the last three months, Scott focused us really hard on making sure we had more women, making sure we had more people of color, making sure we had different, a, a different dynamic than just the white guy. 
Um, and I think we were doing that anyway, but he put a hard focus on that. We've also, he, we've also found people outside of sales a little bit more. You know, we found someone who's in charge of mindfulness at Kaiser, which was a great episode. Um, we've talked with uh, different people and we, we've, when they're comfortable, explored, you know, challenges for women in sales, uh, what the sexism, the, the actual audio is cut out a little bit. Richard's audio is uh, going a little swirly with us, but he's just talking about some of the intentionality that we had. Yeah, I'm with you. I get it. And, um, uh, I, th I think it's really important and it's also exciting to hear about. Uh, so, uh, I really like the mindfulness leader. I wonder how many there are. Yeah, I'm not sure how many there are, but uh, Jason Gant was was his name. Was great. Cool. Where, where's what's Richard doing right now? I have no idea. It's just him muted, and yet I can hear. He's morphing. Audio. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, somebody has taken over your microphone, Richard. Deep, unplug it for a second. Someone has infiltrated the, the yeah. episode. Yeah, you know, uh, Ralph, to answer your question, like we were supposed to be in Costa Rica the last two weeks running surf and sales events. Right? It, it was right now, Scott. Right now, like, right after we were yesterday. Oh my gosh, Richard. Uh, so would it have been ending uh, this, this coming weekend? Yeah, yeah. We were going to do back-to-back weeks for the first time and and we were going to be uh you know in costa rica and we were going to be in mexico um so we wow. were going to go to a different country for the <clears throat> for the first time so that's been you know a bit of like a a kick in the gut right we just had a call last night we were kind of talking about what are we going to do in 2021 should we do like a virtual surf and sales thing or not and uh you know, I, I think this podcast was kind of born out of, it was really Richard's push to make this podcast even happen, but it was born out of like keeping the brand alive here now, since we were not able to host some of these events. And yeah. we've been going at it, you know, really only since this, since January, really. I think we did a couple episodes that were just Richard and I in December. Mm -hmm. um, but we cranked 150 out in, you know, eight and a half months, which is pretty high velocity right Heck so yeah, that's incredible i think you know certainly trying to get us to uh <clears throat> we'll get over 200 for sure i don't know how high into the 200s that that will get um you know just increasing the, the the audience and i think kind of no offense to you but continuing to try to like level up the quality of yes <laughs> if you will right? like we, we were talking last night about like a dream list Right. And, that's you know, so funny. <laughs> Richard, oh, man, no, Richard was like, Richard was like, we should get Mark Cuban on the podcast. Right. Well, we've got Barcy. That's great. But let's get so-and-so. <laughs> you know, you're good for 150, uh, Ralph, but 200, you know, maybe we get Obama on here or something. I love it. <laughs> oh, you know, some, some things like that. Um, but really like there, this is a positive for us. At least I'm spinning it that way. But, um, you know, the wait list, if you will, for surf and sales events, whenever we can run them again, is like 
outrageous right right on man right. that's awesome that um, that just tells me i need to get to one yeah ho hopefully and so, so we were like hey maybe we'll just go set up shop in costa rica for like a month and yeah. just run like four in a row kind of thing right just turn turn it into like we work costa rica surf and sales type it's uh, awesome but yeah you know we're just gonna continue to to try to have interesting conversations with uh with interesting people and um certainly have uh, our eyes on when can we run events again because you know we, we we miss those events they're a lot of fun and uh it's a good business to, to run by the way for us as well so right on well uh thanks for all you do for us and uh, i'm just looking forward to the uh subsequent episodes as you all level up <laughs> I'm, we're on the hook now richard i don't know if you're no pressure is working anymore richard but uh, we're on the, we're on the hook here so um, Ralph, real quick before we before we get out of here, and we want to thank uh, you know Gong as a sponsor of ours again. They've been great to us, and, and Lead Four One One. Check those two companies out if you're looking for any tools for your your sales stack. Um, how can people find you, Ralph? Is there any you know project or cause that you're passionate about right now that you want to speak to for a second? And oh. we'll wrap it up. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, two causes I would uh, I would encourage people to check out. The first is Have a Ball. Have a Ball uh, is an annual golf tournament and uh, foundation for fighting cancer. Uh, that's definitely worth a look. It's haveaball.com. And the second uh, effort that uh, I've been invested in for some time now is called Charity Water. And it puts uh, fresh running water in villages that don't have it. And it's just amazing to me to this day to... to uh, see how many villages and how many people don't have access to fresh water. So uh, it's an effort that uh, I highly recommend people check out and, and participate in. Very easy to find me. RalphBarcy.com is the best way. And then of course I'm on LinkedIn uh, at it's in Ralph Barcy and then uh, Twitter is at Twitter, but um, yeah, pretty simple to find me. And if you write to me, like you said, Scott, like I'll write back to you. I'll actually respond. Great. Thanks so much, Ralph. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure, man, and uh, look forward to getting together sometime soon when we're uh, when we're able to. Same here, guys. Thanks so much for having me. All right.